Well, today we study the book of Jude. I hope you've got the notes on that. Fred sent them out a couple times. Joel sent them out once. So there's no one in this room who in any way not know what we're doing. I'm just kidding, but anyway. So let's start. Uh, if you're using the, the, the notes or whatever, that's great. If not, we're just going to... It's a short little epistle. There are no chapters. It's just a chapter, one chapter. But it's, it's one of my favorites. Uh, it really is. It's one of my favorite epistles. So... We're going to start to dig into it. Let's do a couple of the introductory things. Who is Jude? Jude is the brother of Jesus. He is identified in Matthew 13, verse 55, where the brothers of Jesus are listed. You'll see one of sometimes it, it depends it, because it when you bring it in to English from the Greek, sometimes it's spelled differently, but the most common spelling is J-U-D-E. So anyway, um, Could you give that verse again? Matthew thirteen fifty five, and there is almost no. I mean, there are always the liberal critical scholars who always resist everything. But for the most part, there's real consensus on that. Very few dissenters on that. The book was written in the middle of the sixties, you know, AD sixty five, sixty six, very close to that. So it's a it's fairly early uh, in terms of a number of the epistles. Um, there are most of Paul's epistles are written in the 50s. Um, the book of Revelation was written in 95, which is the last book of the New Testament. So another way of saying it, you're 30 years. You're 30 years after Jesus went back to the Father. So that's not very long as history goes. Why is he writing the book? What's the purpose? Um, Jude as now a leader of the church, he becomes a disciple of Christ and a very important leader in the early church. What he is dealing with in this epistle, and the reason he wrote it, is to deal with error, deal with false teaching, which is creeping into the church. And that's why I like this little epistle, because it shows us very early on, and again, we're only 30 years, at the writing of this epistle is only 30 years after Jesus goes back to the Father. Already, there's error. And so, and that's what Paul deals with, that's what the book of Hebrews deals with. Error is something that leadership must, one, identify, and number two, must be able to correct. And so what you see here is something that I see today, for example, in the continent of Africa. In the continent of Africa today, sub-Saharan Africa, below the Saharan Desert, the church is exploding. I mean, it is growing phenomenally. If you know anybody there, from there or know any missionaries or any, I mean, they will tell you. I mean, the church of, of Jesus Christ in Africa is absolutely exploding to a degree that's also happening in parts of Asia, it's happening in parts of Latin America, but in Africa, it is, it's unbelievable how fast it's growing. And you see the same thing. The key then with growth is you must train and disciple and equip leaders who are going to teach the truth and edify people in the church. And that's what Jude's dealing with. The church is growing so fast in those first decades. The problem, uh, I shouldn't say problem, one of the challenges, there were many, but error is creeping in. And false teachers come in and say this and that and so on. And Jude will talk about how do you deal with that. And that's the value of this epistle. And he stresses the importance of doctrine, the importance of doctrinal truth. And um, I just that's why I love this, this little gem. It just It's so succinctly, almost pithy, in short, bang, 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 approach to things. And I think it's valuable for you and me today because in North America, and uh, broadly speaking, the North American church, there is a significant amount of error creeping in the church. And because leaders, i.e. pastors, are not often well-trained, the error becomes the central focus. And that's what theological, the curse of theological liberalism has done to the North American church. It's a very sad situation. Jim, historically, if, and I, I just started uh, going through some of the historical theology and development. 
Uh, Good. You see the impact of a given individual on doctrine and church. I, I, I was amazed at how much a single individual or maybe two individuals turned the ship in doctrinally away from truth. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't believe that one or two people could do that. Mm-hmm. But in fact, and correct me if I'm wrong, they seem to have, have done that over the course of time. Well, yeah, I mean, and you could you could look at it from another perspective, the value of one person turning the church back to truth. Um, but you're right. It's That's why, um, in, in effect, this is what Jude is saying. If you really know what truth is, you'll always be able to identify error. But if you don't know what truth is, you will never identify error. Just it sounds good, or it's based just on an experience that someone's had. And... Uh, Often, not always, but often, that individual or group of individuals that leads the church astray, um, they're basing uh, their teaching or their appeal on experiences you can have, not on the truth of of doctrine. And you validate truth by an experience. Now, that sentence I just uttered, I don't usually utter important sentences, but that sentence I just uttered is a really important sentence. You do not validate truth by experience. Because experience is often tied to emotion and circumstances. And I don't know about you, but if I ran my life based on emotion, I'd never get out of bed. Now that's an exaggeration, but you know what I mean. Bill Bright, who's with the Lord, he's been with the Lord a long time, he had a beautiful illustration. He compared our life to a train you always have to deal what's the engine and what's the caboose. The engine of your life is faith. Emotion is the caboose. What we sometimes do is switch the two. And emotion is the engine. And faith is the caboose. I hope you're following that analogy. But if that's the way you look at your life, you're going to be going from one catastrophic mountaintop to another catastrophic mountaintop. Because emotion, you know, your emotions are tied to so many things. You don't feel well, you know, you're sick, you've got the flu, you're tired, you're exhausted, you're stressed out, all this. If that's how you run your life, solely on that, and again, I'm, I'm trying not to be glib or in any way condescending, but the Bible stresses over and over again the person that walks with God walks by faith, not emotion. Because you can feel rotten, but that has no, has no relationship whatsoever to your identity in Christ. Your identity in Christ is secure. That's stated. It's absolute fact. Whether you feel like it or not, you're a child of the king. Whether you feel like it or not. If you've made that decision of faith and trust in Christ, that's your anchor. That's your light. That, that's that's the that's the the lamp. I'm using all the different metaphors. The lamp that guides in your path of life. And I'm saying all that because that's what Jude is dealing with here. That's what we deal with today. I mean, I've been involved in discipling men all my life, and that is the greatest challenge. I don't feel like a Christian today. Join the club. I don't either. You know, I mean, it's just it, it, that's why I hate my. If you were my student. And you would answer a question, well, I feel that. I'd say, I'm not asking you to emote. I'm asking you to think. Your response should be, I think. You understand that's a little nuanced. But I feel. That's a very popular word today. And people use feel as a synonym for think. My conviction is, no, I feel that, which means tomorrow I may feel something differently. Christianity is not based on experience. It's based on truth, whether you experience it or not. If no human being on earth ever believed that Jesus Christ was dead, buried, and resurrected, and that characterized the end of his life, that doesn't make it wrong. It still happened. It's still the truth. Whether you believe it or not, that's what happened. All right, I'm way beyond the book. Let's start the book. I always give you a little synthetic chart, which is at the bottom of the first page. I had to do one of these for each book of the Bible when I was in graduate school. 
But I found Swindoll's online. Swindoll's are so much better than mine. So you have Swindoll. It's a nice little way to capture the argument of a book. Joel. Uh, just on Jude, in, at least in the NIV, yeah. it says, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. He doesn't necessarily a brother, say a brother of Jesus. Is that kind of a... Well, James is also the brother of Jesus. Because okay. James, well, you know, the yeah. other epistle. Right, right. I just thought it was kind of interesting that you wouldn't say a brother kind of a show of humility or um, that's a really good question and in one sense I don't know if I can answer it because you know Jude wrote it and the Holy Spirit inspired it but m- many expositors think that he identified himself in that way because James was such a critical central leader in the very early church I'm related to James. Now, and, and you commented on a second reason, as, as evidence of his humility as well, because he identifies himself as a servant. Literally, the word is doulos, slave of Jesus. And I'm also a brother of, of James, who was a key leader in the early church. So he, he's expressing, I'm, it's almost like this. Yes, I am related to Jesus, but what my relationship really is, is I'm his slave now. I'm his, I'm his bond servant, which how Paul identifies himself and so on. So, Joel, I, that's the best I can do in trying to get inside Jude's mind. Why did he do it that way? So, I have a question yeah, along yeah. the same lines. And I'm reading another book, uh, the one that I had you preview for me. And they made reference to uh, one of Jesus' brothers as his uh, half-brother. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what? What are they talking about? And then it took a little thinking, and I realized that, you know, Joseph was probably his father, whereas God, God the was Father, the was the Father of Jesus. Of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And they called him his yeah. his, his half brother. Yeah. I, you know, I I used to say I don't like to do that anymore because, regardless of how you look at it, James and Jude, the two most famous siblings of Jesus, were still siblings. It's like if, you know, if I don't know anything about your background, Woody, but if your father's uh, first wife died like my father's did, and, and then there are more children come along the second wife, they're still brothers and sisters. Legally, in every way, they're brothers and sisters. And you say, well, they're half-brothers and half-sisters. Yeah, but we're still in the same family. You know, it's, it's just kind of, that's why I've, I've stopped doing that, because I think it's valuable to understand that relation. And that's how Matthew 13, 55 talks about it. They are the siblings of Jesus. And that's uh, uh, important. All right, let's dig into it. Joel already read the first verse for us. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And uh, I talked a little bit about that, but I think that um, brother of James is identifying him in relationship to a very, very important leader of the early church. And James was uh, extremely important. Now, what I want you to do is notice the second part of verse 1. He identifies who he is, and I already commented the word servant there is doulos. It's, you could translate that slave, but it's usually translated servant or bond servant. Now, let's just, let's just think about that for a little bit. Um, why call yourself that? Why say, I'm a servant, I'm a slave, I'm a bond servant, servant of Jesus Christ? Why would you identify yourself in that way? You don't have any say in the matter. You have to take up your cross, basically put yourself to death and follow me. So as a slave, you don't have, any, you don't have a vote. Who bought you? Yeah. What was the price? Yeah, I'm trying to use New Testament. <clears throat> John. Yes. Yes. I just want to sure I got the right name there. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and following, there Paul says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? <laughs> You are no longer your own. You're bought with a price. That's all tied into this concept of being a bondservant. 
You, and and John said, absolutely, you're no, longer, you're no longer your own. You're not making your own decisions. And the price was the shed blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ bought you, purchased you. The New Testament word is redeemed. Ex agarazzo is the Greek term there. Powerful concept. And so when, when James, sorry, when Jude here, and Paul does it, and James does it, when they identify themselves as a doulos of Christ, John's got it. He's nailed it. They're no longer their own. They belong to him. Him is Jesus. He purchased them with his shed blood. And that is true for every one of you around this table, if you put your faith in Christ. You're his doulos. You're his servant. You are to serve him and serve others to his glory. And that gives a whole fresh new perspective to who I am in Christ. I now belong to him. Paul says this in another part of the letter to the first Corinthians. If you belong to Christ and you're his servant, how dare you take your body and make it an instrument of evil? I mean, that's that's the language Paul uses. How dare you do that? And so it gives this... um, In the ancient world, that was a negative. But what the New Testament does is turns it into a positive. And let me give you one more illustration of this. It's John chapter 13, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Remember that's a very famous part of what happens in the upper room. Why did Jesus do that? To illustrate their new status in the relationship with him. As I did this for you, you now do this for others. It's a metaphor. I mean, I mean you and I, I mean, whether the Brethren Church and a few others look at foot washing as, a, as an ordinance like baptism and the Lord's table, but most do not. I don't think it is an ordinance. I think it's just an illustration, a metaphor of what it means to now be a servant, to be a doulos. In the ancient world, it meant you're willing to wash people. So that's how much you serve them. You're willing to go to the extent of washing. That's something a bond servant did. No free person in the ancient world washed people's feet. That was the role of a servant. Jesus did it. The Son of God, the God-man, did it to illustrate what? As I did this to you, you do this. This is your new role now. So it's a powerful concept. It it, it really is. It's a a powerful, life-changing, transformational way of thinking about ourselves. We're citizens of the kingdom. We're rule and reign with Jesus, but until he comes back, what's our role? A servant. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? The child of a king does not wash people's feet unless the king is Jesus and we're his, we're his, his citizens. Then that's what we do. Okay? All right, we spent five minutes on one word. It's a, it's a power. That's how he identifies himself. And then a comment on, on Joel's question. He is seeing himself as the brother of a very, very famous church leader of the first century, James. To those who are called, it's from the Greek word kaleo, which is called. So that's the challenge. He's just bringing, we're bringing in English from the Greek, just bringing in letter for letter. That is now... I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but that is one of the major vocabulary words of the New Testament for those who are saved. You're called. Paul uses that all of the time in his New Testament letters. There are 13 of them. Called is a New Testament synonym for saved, for salvation. And the term called stresses God's role in the salvation process. Not your role, but God's role. Now, that, that sentence I just uttered, that's a theological sentence. It's, you remember, I've drawn the railroad tracks, remember those? The called is the divine sovereignty part of the railroad tracks. The responsible human freedom part is the other route. You still have to choose. You still have to make the decision. But all Jude is doing, he's doing that because of the second half of the sentence. 
which I, I want to look at in a minute. So, I mean, I don't want you to stumble on it. It's just called, think of the railroad tracks, it's the divine sovereignty track. Do you remember what the railroad tracks is? Do I have to draw it up here again? The railroad track, that's the Bible. This is how God presents it. In case you don't recognize that's a railroad track, okay? The one side of the track is divine sovereignty. <clears throat> The other side of the railroad track is human responsibility. All James, sorry, Jude is doing, the word called is a verb for this side of the railroad track. He doesn't use it here, but I want to use the word believe. Which side of the railroad track is that? This side. Called is the, the God-centered word. He doesn't use it here, but believe is a human-centered word. Follow me or just an illusion? I'm being theological here, but we've got to be theological. That's how Jude has written the book. I just don't want you to stumble. But notice the second part of the verse. Called, beloved in God the Father, and kept. Kept for Jesus Christ. Who's keeping you? God the Father. <clears throat> so all, all Jude is doing in the second half of verse 1 is stressing this side of the railroad track. He's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean he doesn't believe that. You go to all huge numbers of New Testament verses all over the place that stress this. That's why Jude is really theological. He's just saying, I want to remind you, who are you? I'm a servant, as he is. I'm called. And I'm kept. Another synonym for kept is persevere. Who gives you the capacity to hang in there? To not give up. To not surrender. To not throw in the towel. God the Father. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of confidence in God the Father if he promises to keep me. Paul writes in Philippians chapter four, verse uh, chapter one, verse four, I think it is, that that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. So your perseverance, you're hanging in there, you're enduring. Who's it up to? Primarily up to God. It doesn't mean you don't have a. But it's just focusing on this side of the railroad track. Not ignoring. It's just saying this. We're kept by the Father. So I just think that's a neat idea. Obviously. I would say that he will keep his responsibility. And as a Christian, we know what our responsibility is. We do have a portion to play in that. We do. We do have a role. But theologically. You see, it gets into something I don't want to talk about. Yeah, it gets into the, can you lose your salvation idea. <laughs> yeah. But that's not, that. the word kept is a very powerful word. Primarily, my Identity in Christ is not dependent on me. If I make the decision of faith, I put my faith, I believe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it applies to me, then I'm in the circle, my identity. I'm in Christ 242 times in the New Testament. And part of being in that circle of identity, being in Christ, is I'm kept by the Father. I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but that idea of kept, that it is God the Father's responsibility to keep me, that's an important part of our security. Now, Fred's right. That doesn't absolve us. This doesn't lead to libertinism, you do whatever you want. That's not what he's saying. He's just reviewing our position and our identity in Christ. Called and kept. This side of the railroad track is what he's stressing. All right. Lots of questions you could ask about this. Yeah, well, go ahead. What? Uh, well, if whistling straights. It's a golf course. Okay. I don't play golf. But okay, that's all right. I just haven't seen it. Um, so <clears throat> some are called then by implication. Some aren't called. 
And, I, and that's why I mean, there are a lot of questions you get asked about this verse. From this perspective of the railroad tracks, that would be correct. But everyone that's called also believes. And those who are not called do not believe. In other words, those who are not called are rejecting willfully, intentionally, with all the all of the understanding that goes into willful rejection of what they are rejecting. But I mean, in summary, this is an amazing verse, isn't it? Oh, it is. I mean, I think it's, it's one of the most astounding. On table, each of us called. Yeah. Yeah. Individually. Yeah. Woody picked you right out. But there was a time when I was not. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you that. There was a time when you were rejecting willfully and intentionally the grace that God was offering you. But then there was a time where you gave up and said, okay, Lord, I surrender. That's the way to look at it. It's just, I mean, to me, it's just amazing that Mm -hmm. God would choose Mm -hmm. me. That's right. That's right. And that's, that's one of the really wonderful things about the New Testament when it talks about, again, these things from this side of the railroad track. It doesn't ask us or, or invite us to consider all the controversy associated with it. It invites us to praise God that that's the truth. So it doesn't mean we don't ask questions. It, no, it's all right to ask questions. But you ultimately get to the point where when we're dealing with the things of God, we probably are never going to completely fully with 100% completeness understand it all there's always a mystery that comes with the things in the heart of god but at the same time it's it's paul does that in romans he goes through these deep things in romans 9 10 11 and he always he ends up praising god because of it exalting god because of it and jim you put it right that in eternity god chose jim back and it's amazing the calling is to keep you and then he promises to keep us. Yeah. Do you think people are out there saying you can lose your salvation and a mixture of both of those together, man? You know, I know there's people out there that say that. My response, Tom, to that is, and it is, it's a difficult thing to start noodling through with people. Yeah. But if you believe that you can lose your salvation, you're only focusing on this side of the railroad track. That my, my security is based on me still doing what God wants me to do. Or he can take it away. When I first started in ministry, way back in the very late 1970s, I had a sermon entitled, God is not an Indian giver. I couldn't use that. I couldn't use that as a sermon title today, could I? Did you ever hear that? Did you, did you ever hear when you were growing up, an Indian giver, where you take something, you give something, and you take it away? I couldn't do it. That I could never have a sermon title like that in 2017. But it's it's the it's this it's this truth, and I've said this before. God does it all and lays the gift on the table. You must pick it up. But if you pick it up. And he grants you, he grants you salvation. He doesn't take it back based on what you do. I've said this many, many times to young adults. There's nothing you, if you belong to Jesus Christ, there's nothing you can do that's going to cause God to love you any more or any less than he does right now. His love for you, his grace and mercy for you is not contingent on what you do. Now, the way I constructed that sentence is really important. Your position in Christ is not contingent on what you do. If you put your faith in him. You follow me? I mean, that. now there are other, there are other factors in the result because the motive for living the way the Lord wants us to live is now a motive of loving obedience. And that's, 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 that's what's in the New Testament. Jesus says, since you love me, keep my commandments. Not keep my commandments or I won't love you. That's not what he said. Since you love me, I love you. God sent the Son into the world because he loved him. 
So, I mean, it's just it's keeping all that straight. And, and Jim's right. You, you look at those two words, called and kept. That's the focus of this, but that's the focus of this for every single one of us in this ta- around this table. That's who we are. Who am I in Christ? I'm called and kept by the Father. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, it, it's, it's profound. And it's just worthy of just meditating. In my home, the church that I'm ordained with, I, I visited it on Sunday, and it's a, it's a great church. It's, it's a very large church, and I they they had communion that uh, on Sunday, and um, the pastor is preaching through Galatians. He just started, and I've never heard the Sunday. Some of you have heard this. I've never heard the song "Oh the Blood." It's a fairly new song, but you look at the lyrics of that. I, I'm I'm not kidding you, and I say this very transparently. Till that was over, we're in the middle of communion. Tears were just coming down my eyes, my, my cheeks. I was just reflecting again on all Jesus did for me. And it's just, the lyrics of it are just very moving as you just reflect again on all Christ has done for us. And all he's done, he said, here it is. I've done it all. Just pick it up. And you see, that's the other side of the railroad tracks. If a human refuses to pick it up, that means they are rejecting willfully the grace that God offers in Christ. And it's, you know, it's an intentional, willful, decisive, determined rejection. Because remember, God reveals himself in his creation, in conscience, in his moral law, and in Jesus. That's four revelations of who he is. All right, we have one verse done, but that's all right. Just one observation. <laughs> Absolutely. Probably only Jesus' mother knew Jesus as well as Jude did, because he was Probably correct, probably correct. I mean, so to me, that is a real authentication. I mean, he watched this baby grow into an adult and have ministry, and it just authenticates and, that he was saw genuine. saw him crucified and saw him resurrected, and that's right. Jim, that's one of the things about the all of these New Testament authors, or virtually all these New Testament authors. They're not writing about an event that occurred 400 years earlier. They're writing about an event like James. The Epistle of James was written in A.D. 49. Jesus goes back to the Father in A.D. 33. So if my math is correct, that's 16 years. You look at Paul's first letter, it was Galatians, written in A.D. 49, the fall of A.D. 49, 16 years after Jesus went back to the Father. You see, they, they saw it. They saw the effects of it. And James and Jude, who were the brothers of Jesus, they saw it. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it's very clearly stated, James did not come to faith in his brother until after the resurrection. It was the resurrection that convinced James that what his brother was saying was true. He, reje- he rejected it. He really did. And Paul, same thing. He rejected who Jesus was until Jesus intervened in his life on the Damascus Road. Acts 22. So, I mean, it's just, th- th- that's one of the, and you used a great word, that's one of the authenticating factors of this. This isn't stuff that was written by somebody 500, 700, like, well, I could go into a lot of examples of this. This is only a few years after the event. They saw it all. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be neat if we knew that Jesus was uh, going to be down to the center downtown and we could all go down there and see him if we wanted to, you know? Yeah. And witness it, you know, yeah. and actually witness. Yeah. But the, we have the next best thing, Woody. We have individuals who did exactly that. Yes. They They heard and saw and listened to Jesus three years of public ministry, then they heard and saw the resurrected Jesus. So, yeah, Ed. Remember correctly, the Catholic Church never talks about Jesus' family, brothers. Matter of fact, they deny it. It's not in the Bible. It's very perpetual. Yes, it doesn't happen. Wow. They translate Matthew thirteen fifty five Adolphos, which is the term for brother, as cousin. Oh, 
Now, I don't mean to be unkind, Ed, but that is not what that word means. Adelphos means brother. But that's all I have to say. Well, about I've learned so much here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's part, part of that, part of that is, part of that results from what a doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church is the perpetual virginity of Mary. That Mary remained a virgin all her life. She never had sexual relations with Joseph. Uh, the New Testament doesn't seem to say that. As a matter of fact, it seems to say the opposite. They had children, and Matthew 13 is where you see some of the children identified, that the brothers and sisters of Jesus identified. Why would that matter? Why would what matter? That she was remained a virgin. Well, uh, Joel, that then connects to another teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, that she's the queen of heaven, yeah. Romans 12 co-redemptrix with her son. And the key uh, intercessor, you go to Mary and pray to Mary so that she then intercedes for you on behalf of her son. Jim? Verse, okay, we're still not out of verse one, but that's all right. I keep asking questions. You know, um, I think most of the guys around, around here <coughs> understand salvation in the sense that we have been referring to the cross of Christ and the shed blood. There are times when individuals around this table might find it very difficult, a difficult spot in life. And they may come to the point where they want to throw in the towel or just say, you know, I don't even know if I believe this. Mm. Mm. Is is it good to have a, a, a Christian buddy or friend mm. <clears throat> to call and say, I need to talk? Sure, absolutely. That's I, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with no. what you say. It's much easier, it seems, this is a broad stroke statement, for women to be able to do that than it is for men. It's hard for men to do that, but it is. I am your, in the words of Paul in, in Galatians 6, I'm your burden bearer. I can help, and me, I can do that. If all of you call me and want it in an hour, I can't do it. But, you know, I'll pray with you, I'll share a burden. We are burden bearers. We are to encourage and edify and help one another, absolutely. And that's why the end of verse 1 is one of those verses that, again, it gets back to something when I started this morning. When you don't feel like you're a Christian, and I'm really stressing feel, read the second hand for verse 1. doesn't matter how I feel, I'm called and kept by the Father. That's who I am. But I don't feel like it. I know you don't feel like it. You have a headache. <clears throat> You don't feel good today because you're sick or you've had a tremendous series of very stressful situations and you feel as if everything's... At. Go back to verse 1a. I'm called and kept by the... That's who I am. And just start going through all of those. That's when my wife... My wife has memorized large portions of Scripture. She exercises with these cards as she's just reviewing. I said, honey, what are you doing? I'm reviewing my verses. Because she's putting the Word of God into her mind. To remind herself, who am I in Christ? Well, this second half, verse 1, is a great place to start. I'm called and kept by the Father. That's how important I am to him. Peggy loves verse uh, chapter 10 of Gospel of John. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. And every one of his sheep, he knows them by name. Isn't that a great thought? Psalm 139. Before, I was an unformed substance in my mother's womb. Oh, Yahweh, you knew me. That's kind of an awesome thought. Can we do verse 2? Would that be all right? <laughs> now, don't rush into it. <laughs> That's good. Now, verse 2. May mercy... 
peace and love be multiplied to you. Isn't that a great greeting, a great salutation? You're called, you're kept. Now, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. Every one of those words is an incredibly important New Testament word. Now, I read from the ESV translation, but I like how they translated that word, multiplied to you. What, before we look at mercy, peace, and love, what comes into your mind when you see a verb like multiplied? I mean, you understand? What comes into your mind? Why does he use that word multiplied to you? Abundance. Huh? Abundance. Abundance. Multiplication, whether you're doing multiplication tables, three times three, you know, et cetera, you're just thinking of something abundant. You know, it just, it just keeps growing. Then you get to 12 times 12, you know, etc. So he's saying, I don't want this to be a one-time blessing of God. I want this to be multiplied. What? Mercy, peace, and love. I'm not sure if there's an order to this, but I think there probably is. Mercy of God produces the peace of God, which produces the love of God. And both mercy, all three, mercy, peace, and love, have a vertical dimension to it and a horizontal dimension to it. Okay, let's take this apart. Mercy, peace, and love. Mercy. It's interesting, Jude does not choose to use the word grace, which is a more common greeting in the New Testament. Paul does this all the time. Grace and peace to you. He does this, I think, in every one of his 13 letters. That's how he opens his letters. But Jude chooses mercy. I don't know exactly know why, but let's just make sure we understand the difference. Mercy is not getting what you really deserve. What do we deserve? Judgment. But in Christ, we're offered citizenship in the kingdom, child of God, an object of God's love, etc., etc. Ruling and reigning with him in his coming kingdom, that's mercy. And grace is, as someone one time said, God riches at Christ's expense. It's getting what we, it, it's, it's giving to us an unmerited, unimaginable favor. Many years ago, my son, when he was a real little boy, we used to have all the stuff that the kids were supposed to do in the refrigerator, and if they didn't do it, there was a little punishment or whatever. I think for Jonathan at that time, it was like he owed 50 cents. And so I said to him, son, this is the first time you've done that. Just give me a dime. What did I just extend to him? Mercy. According to the standards of our home, the penalty was 50 cents. But I'm his dad. It was the first time he ever did it. I love him. I want to make sure that he understands mercy. So son, 10 cents. Then I sent him to his room for an hour. 30 minutes into that one hour, which for a little six-year-old is eternity, I took him in a dish of chocolate ice cream with peanuts sprinkled on top. What was that? That was grace. Unmerited favor. Isn't, isn't, isn't forgiveness tied in there with mercy? It is. Instead of judgment, forgiveness. That's right. It's an aspect of mercy. So he's just stressing that. And the result of mercy, the result of mercy of God, and by the way, if you don't accept it, it's not applied to you. If you don't accept the mercy, that's it. if you don't accept it, it's not applied to you. There's a very famous, I'm sure you've heard it, a very, very famous Example of this in the United States of America when Andrew Jackson was president. You know, at the end of every president's term, they pardon a whole bunch of people. Obama did that, you know. And it was a guy that Andrew Jackson, uh, in 1836, he pardoned a guy. Do you know what? He refused to accept it. So was he pardoned? No. He stayed in jail for the rest of his life. He just refused. He refused it because he said, I'm innocent. 
I'm in here. And so Jackson says, I know you are, so we're going to pardon. I'm sorry. I want a new court trial. I want to prove. And Jackson is saying, that's not how a pardon works. I mean, it's just, it was the most ridiculous, but it was an example of, if you don't pick up the, if you don't pick up the gift, the merciful, gracious gift of God, it's never applied to your life. I'm just saying that because then the second thing will never apply. Peace. The peace of God. The Hebrew word is shalom. The Greek word is irene. Peace is, there is no longer any barrier between me and God. I'm no longer his enemy. I'm now his child. There's no peace. And then that becomes a quality. Uh, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. You remember that? For, or they shall have peace. So that peacemakers, then that relationship, we now are, have, have peace in our relationships with our, with our children, with our spouses, with our employers, with our neighbors, and so on. Which enables us, then, the third one is to love. The Greek word, there's agape. I'm sure you've all heard of that. It's one of those two or three Greek words. Everybody knows that Greek word. If you don't know what it is, this is how it's spelled. But it's one of those words that's very precious in the New Testament, agape. It means other-centered, self-sacrificing love. It's an other-centered you're not in a relationship, whether it's in business or neighbor or children or your spouse. What you get out of the deal, you are utterly, totally serving, not thinking of yourself. So he's just saying, may they be multiplied. And every one of those, every one of those are things that are extended to us by God. And they are also the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So these are things that God supernaturally begins to produce in our life. All right, we still have a few minutes, but we've taken an hour on two verses. But that's, it just illustrates to, I hope to you, the richness of God's word. So, so what, what are the implications of the word may? That's good. Uh, if you didn't hear what Jim asked, the implications of the word may, it's, um, it's a... It is, a, in effect, a prayer that Jude is praying to God on behalf of these people whom he's writing to. May God multiply this to you. God, I'm praying, will you multiply this? So we may or may not necessarily experience these things as it depended upon... Uh, oh, Jim, <laughs> it's at the end of the class. And may, may God develop these qualities in your life, and may they be manifested into your life. That's what God wants for you. But even if you put your faith in Christ, Jim, and you don't want these, God will still work to develop these in your life. It's his fruit that he produces in your life. But, I mean, it is, if you and I want to experience the bounty of our relationship with the Lord, it is allowing him to transform us. And these are three words which define part of the transformation. What does that look like? It means... As God's been merciful to me, I will be merciful to others. As God has shown love to me, I will show love to others. That takes a while, doesn't it? I don't know about you. There are some people I just don't love and I don't like, and I refuse to be nice to them. I'm making that up to an extent. But I think you all have a few people in your mind that you can, yeah, I have the same. That's exactly how I think about them, too. You know, but it's just allowing allowing the Lord to develop these things in us. So it's sort of the right side of the track. It is. It is. If you want to experience this, this, this is what God wants for you. Galatians four nineteen. What's God doing? He's transforming you into the image of His Son. What if I don't want that? It'll just take God longer. It's gonna have a little more discipline, a little more chastising to bring you along. But He knows what's did, best for us. Did you tell us that you've done sermons on Jude? 
Yeah, I preached on Jude. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it again. You didn't this. Get that done in an hour, did you? Oh no. no. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to remember, Woody. And when I'm preaching in a church with the congregation, they're not raising their hand asking me questions. <laughs> They're not going down bunny trail. No, but I mean, that's the value of a study like this. You have the freedom to ask the questions. But I always, um, I always invite people to you know, email me with questions if you have questions, if I'm preaching somewhere or whatever. This is great. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's a great. Well, let me, can I introduce, because we're done, I guess, but the next part is... Verse 3 and 4 explains why he's writing. But I want you to look with me just at the end of verse 3. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now the verb contend, you know what that means. Contend's like a, you fight for it. You struggle on behalf of it. And notice the faith. What faith? The word faith can be used in a verbal sense, is that act where you put your trust in Jesus Christ. But also, in the noun sense of faith, is that body of what we believe, like the Christian faith. Follow me? So which, which one is being used here? Well, the Christian faith, that body of teaching that we believe. So contend for what? For the doctrinal truth that was once for all delivered. God isn't adding to it. There's not new truth being added. It's been delivered. Where do you find it? In the 66 books of the Bible. So it's a great little statement. He's saying, I started to write this letter to talk about our common salvation that we enjoy, but I changed my mind. I find it necessary appealing to you to contend for the faith. That's where we'll start next Wednesday. It's a great, that's a great, that's one of my favorite verses. Because I think that's as applicable today in 2017 as it was in A.D. 66 when, James, when Jude wrote this. Contend for the faith. All right. Let me pray. Right. God, we truly thank you that uh, we can hear truth in your word and apply it to our lives daily here. And uh, thank you for Jim. Uh, who leads us, and thank you for his parents uh, who are one with us in Christ. We pray you give him great wisdom and, uh, and mercy and kindness as he works through this particular issue that seems most mm. difficult for all of us if we've been there. Mm. And uh, we uh, just, just pray for him and for each member of this, uh, this group here that we would live for you in your strength knowing that we are sealed forever through Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray for each man here, too, that just those little words at the end of verse 1, that we are called and kept by the Father. They are deep, profound, life-changing truths. And when we maybe don't feel like it, this is a good reminder of who we are in Christ. And may you continue your work of developing in us the mercy and the peace and the love not only for you, but for one another, because we are bearing one another's burden, sharing in this journey as we head on to heaven, our our eternal destiny, to rule and reign with you in your coming kingdom. Thank you in Christ's name. See you next week.